1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This week, in a special episode of the podcast, we mark the 100th anniversary of the First World War's deadliest battle the Battle of the Somme. This episode is all about conflict.
3: We'll be looking at the mental toll of war, then and now.
1: And the emotional and practical difficulty of counting the dead during conflict.
4: It's a a false distinction to say, well, there's a scientific process and an emotional process. No, no, no. They they should go together.
1: Plus, how best to predict conflicts and their outcomes. Later on in the show, we'll have all your favourite news and highlights as usual. But first, into the breach. I'm Adam Levy.
3: And I'm Kerry Smith. The Battle of the Somme began in northern France on the 1st of July, 1916. It's remembered as one of the deadliest battles in British military history. There are plenty of similarities with conflicts today, but also a lot of differences. In this first story, Adam has been looking at one gruesome task that began in the First World War and continues today.
1: In a darkened hall in the basement of the Imperial War Museum in London, there's a map of northern France. From a distance, it looks like an old road atlas, almost a metre wide, with a fine, regular grid drawn on top of it. This is a map of the Somme. Each square is about five times the length of a football pitch. And, like a Sudoku, the squares contain little numbers, handwritten in blue ink. 50,
5: 233,
1: 90, 270... Ian Kikuchi has seen this map countless times. He's a historian at the museum but that doesn't mean he finds it easy to look at.
6: When, you, when it dawns on you what these annotations represent, um, it's an object that that's it's gobsmacking, really.
5: 70. 485.
1: We're looking at a body density map of the First World War front line. The numbers in each box represent the number of grave markers found there when the battlefields were surveyed after the war had ended the number of bodies that had to be moved from the makeshift graves to permanent cemeteries. Eight,
5: 16.
6: It's, an, it's a map which, in a very understated way, gives an extremely, almost unbearably detailed insight into the sheer concentration of human suffering that was strewn across the battlefields of the Somme.
5: 299, 55, 104.
1: Millions of soldiers died in the First World War, and it was one of the first times that these deaths were recorded in such detail. And the bureaucracy of war meant that deaths could be recorded and tallied in a way not seen before. But in the past hundred years, wars have changed again. They're no longer fought by two clearly definable armies, and civilian casualties can far outweigh military deaths. With these changes, counting the dead has often taken on political importance. In Vietnam, the death count became America's measure of progress in its war with the Viet Cong. In Guatemala in the 1980s, it was a way of evaluating which side was guilty of more atrocities. That's according to Patrick Ball, director of research at the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, based in San Francisco.
4: As the political import of the body counts increases, the importance of getting the numbers right also increased but of course it's very very difficult to get these numbers right because the conflicts often occur in remote locations the deaths often go undocumented at the time that they occur Uh, and so it's difficult to get an accurate count
1: researchers have to piece things together from the information that they can get in the first world war identity tags and the names of the missing soldiers help keep track of the fallen but such information provides only a partial picture. In today's conflicts, surveys can be conducted of the living to build up a picture of deaths that can be extrapolated to the rest of the country. Or different groups, ranging from NGOs to places of worship, can gather lists of the dead, and quantitative analysts like Patrick can work out where the lists overlap and where they miss sections of the population. Regardless of method, any count will rely on collecting the most accurate data possible on the ground. Surveys especially rely heavily on interviews carried out with families, colleagues or co-combatants of the victims. Les Roberts is an epidemiologist at Columbia University who has used these surveys to estimate deaths in times of war. He explains just how crucial it is to get this step of the process right.
7: Of all the times we get bad information about deaths in wars, by far, by far, by far, The main reason for bad information is because of a failure of communication between the interviewer and the interviewee.
1: Such failures of communication can arise, for example, when a mother feels like the death of her child may be seen as her fault rather than attributed to the surrounding conflict.
7: If you ask about deaths in a household and at the same time you weigh and measure children, Mothers will perceive you are judging them, and it becomes really hard for her to say, oh, and I lost my seven-month-old child last year. And the solution to this is to have great local staff.
1: This staff's insider knowledge can make all the difference in building up an accurate picture of a conflict. But the job comes with a high cost.
7: It's often really psychologically brutal, I worked for WHO in Rwanda during the genocide. I was there on the ground, and you know, I saw three people murdered up close. I saw hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies. And my wife tells me that for about three or four months afterwards, I was a complete vegetable. I have no memory of this at all. But, for example, we were driving in the countryside, and we drove by a dead cow, and she tells me that I just burst into uncontrollable tears.
1: Once the work of gathering and analysing this information is done, it can be central to unpicking the current state of a conflict. Patrick Ball again.
4: What's interesting are the patterns rather than the magnitude. So, you know, if we, if we think about Syria now, uh, we're interested in is violence going up or going down? Is there more after the government retakes a town or were there more killings before the government retook a town? And those, those kinds of comparisons illuminate... Uh, dynamics inside the conflict that can be very, very useful when we're trying to have some kind of accountability for the conflict.
1: That means that the numbers collected can feed into recording human rights abuses from the state and provide evidence in war crimes tribunals. But as comprehensive a picture as such numbers can provide, often numbers can pale in comparison to a single image. Here's Les Roberts again.
7: I think that there are times and places and people for whom a number is profoundly important. And there are other times when a little Syrian child washes up on a beach, and it is such a heart-wrenching image that that photograph can do far more good for mobilizing humanitarian and political resources than any number ever could do and i i just accept that different mechanisms of communicating anguish are needed to tell the world what's happening
1: les roberts ending that report before him you heard from patrick ball and ian kikuchi the body density map described at the beginning of the segment can be seen for free at the imperial war museum london wars kill but they also wound. Parts of the next story were recorded at the Science Museum's new exhibition commemorating medical advances driven by the First World War.
3: July the 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. By the time night fell, there were almost 60,000 casualties among the British forces. Donald Hodge served as a private during the battle. ...often running messages between trenches.
7: Oh, one night during one of the battles of the Somme... ...our line was blown to pieces really. Our front line had actually disappeared.
3: This audio recording was made in 1995. The kind of battle Donald is describing... ...with shells, tanks and the huge scale of injuries... ...it was unprecedented. Emily Mayhew is a historian of military medicine... ...at Imperial College London. If
8: you went to a military ward during a war um, before 1914, seven out of ten people on that ward would have some kind of disease or infection. And only three of them would have wounds. You didn't have high-velocity rifles, you didn't have very large explosive shells. In the First World War, almost immediately, ten out of ten are very bad
3: wounds, the like of which none of the medics have ever seen. And that was just the physical. Soldiers and medics alike also had to contend with the mental trauma of battle.
7: Together we had to make a line, dragging shell-shocked soldiers out of shell holes and making them stand on top at the point of the revolver.
3: Shell-shocked soldiers. The First World War was the first time that phrase had been heard. Doctors at the time described shell shock as a mix of symptoms, disorientation, dizziness, nightmares, heart palpitations, even blindness. The closest modern-day equivalent would be post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Some in the army, like Donald Hodges' captain, tried to dismiss shell shock, or saw it as a weakness of character. But many doctors at the time saw that it was an injury, a result of the physical experience of the deafening, terrifying environment of the front line. Some were convinced it was a product of a damaged brain. Emily Mayhew again.
8: We actually have known always that service in warfare is is something that can have a profound effect on the psyche. And so there were people who paid attention. There was a new class of medic that came, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, uh, the people concerned with mental health. And so they really paid attention to the
3: condition. To deal with the scale of casualty and, crucially, to keep soldiers in action, special centres were set up near battlegrounds to treat and rest the men, with the aim of returning them to war. In these centres, treatment for shell shock might simply be a piece of cotton wool to make earplugs and a bit of bed rest. But some soldiers just could not return to battle.
8: You have the concept of the unexpected survivor. What the new system has done has saved their lives. So they're going to need more treatment. They're not only going to need treatment in the short term, they're going to need it in the medium term, and we now understand they're going to need it in the long term. And that's where things got a bit deficient. And it wasn't really understood that they would go on paying a price for their casualty and for their survival.
9: As a nurse and officer, I was a great advocate of PTSD is nothing to be ashamed of. This is Gary
3: King who completed five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, the
9: final one in 2010. When it came to me, uh, I didn't mention it. I just volunteered for another tour and that's my way of coping with it. I just went back out on tour again um, until I couldn't do it anymore. In
3: 2010, he says he had a meltdown and received a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder.
9: I became a recluse. I. Um, your, your brain takes over and you, you, you become very hyper vigilant. Um, and I had a panic attack in a supermarket um, and I felt that I was gonna die. Um, so then I stopped going to supermarkets and I would only visit smaller shops and then I started getting panic attacks in smaller shops. So then it was easier not to leave the house. And you don't see a way out you think that this is going to be it for the rest of your life. For some, that, that thought is, uh, is too much and they do take their own lives.
3: The British Army has community psychiatrists, which Gary describes as hit and miss. He started to get the help he needed when he got in touch with the charity Combat Stress. Combat Stress set Gary up with an intensive programme of cognitive behaviour therapy. These programmes work by training patients to think over their experiences and gradually lessen their emotional impact. CBT is recognised as an effective treatment for PTSD. Of course, nothing like that was available for most men returning from the First World War. In extreme cases, ex-soldiers were confined in asylums or institutions. But the medics who dealt with the aftermath of the First World War might have gotten one thing right. Something that could help us treat returning soldiers more effectively today. In some cases, at least, the mental trauma that some soldiers endure might have a physical basis.
10: This has been a a debate that's gone on for literally 100 years.
3: That's Daniel Pearl, a pathologist at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Maryland. He's just finished a post-mortem study of the brains of several ex-service members who'd been exposed to explosions.
10: Among their many symptoms, all of them had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder we found that indeed there was a consistent lesion that was rather unique that uh, in these cases in which there was was prior exposure to blast.
3: Now, of course, it's a small study. And it's a correlation. Daniel can't be sure that the brain scarring he saw is causing the PTSD-like symptoms. But it does lend some weight to the original concept of shell shock put forward in 1915 by a doctor called Frederick Mott.
10: Uh, Mott had... Suggested the hypothesis that the mental changes following exposure to blast in World War I was indeed related to physical damage to the brain. He would have been very satisfied to to, to learn that uh, his hypothesis is, uh, was borne out by our study.
3: Not everyone who has PTSD will have brain injury, and not everyone who survives a blast will develop PTSD. Daniel's team are next planning to find a diagnostic measure of the scarring in living brains. And if the link can be strengthened, it could change the treatment for service members who have been through blasts and show this scarring.
10: Knowing that there's a physical uh, uh, damage related to it, I mean, one would have to start thinking about how one would would treat that damage and, and make the repair that the brain is trying to accomplish Uh, more efficient, more effective.
3: That was neuropathologist Daniel Pearl. Before him, historian of military medicine Emily Mayhew and Captain Gary King. The audio recording of Donald Hodge is from the collections of the UK's Imperial War Museum, iwm.org.uk. Music in this and the previous piece was from Pond5.
1: Next up, Noah Baker has been finding out whether conflict can be predicted. Earlier this month, after almost a decade
6: of waiting, the Chilcot inquiry into the British role in the invasion of Iraq was published. It analysed the decision taken by the government at the time to go to war. One focus of the report was based around how much the government could have predicted other conflicts which arose as a result of the war, a question that's not easily answered. Trying to make accurate predictions of conflicts and their fallout has kept political experts busy for centuries, and they still haven't cracked it. In recent decades, scientists have started turning to computer models in their quests for more accurate predictions. But can an algorithm really outperform a political expert? I spoke with Philip Schroet of Paris Analytical Systems in the USA who's been working on these kinds of models for years.
11: What all of these systems, and there's quite a few of them, are trying to do is provide either a, um, a watch list, in other words a, a list of countries that are, are likely to experience conflicts versus ones that you just don't need to worry about.
6: These conflict models are built with algorithms that are not too dissimilar to those used in other areas of predictive science.
11: We basically use uh, pretty straightforward statistical methods, the same sort of statistics that you use for all sorts of other problems that, you know, insurance companies use and so forth. And then uh, the the difference between now, where our models are pretty good and about, say, 20 years ago where they weren't, we just have an immense amount of data.
6: And these could be all kinds of data, data on wealth, on health care, satellite imaging, even news reports, the list goes on. These can then be fed into models informed by thousands of years of political thinking and outpop predictions. The real question is how accurate are they and can they really beat the human experts?
11: Really over the last 10 years uh, we've seen this convergence between the quantitative met- the computer-based met- models and the very best mo- uh, human-based models and they're all converging to this about 80 to 85 uh, percent accuracy. It's it, Turns out there's lots of different ways you can measure accuracy, but, but the 80 to 85% is is about right.
6: In these analyses, Schroett pits his models against the very best human forecasters. But not all experts are created equal. Philip Tetlock, a psychologist and political scientist from the University of Pennsylvania, wanted to find out more about the accuracy of expert predictions. So he carried out an
0: experiment. Well, we were uh, asking uh, subject matter experts to make predictions inside the domains of their expertise. And we would also ask the same subject matter experts not only to make predictions inside the domain they know well, but also in another domain. So we might have subject matter experts on Russia making predictions about uh, southern Africa. Tetlock also compared their predictions with very simple computer
6: models called extrapolation algorithms. They work on one basic principle. If
0: there hasn't been any conflict in the last year, predict no conflict the next year. So it would be a simple matter of saying that the future is going to be like the past. What they found was a little disconcerting. The experts had a very hard time beating simple extrapolation algorithms. And experts working inside and outside their domains of expertise were not appreciably very different.
6: And beyond this question of accuracy, Philip Schroth suggests that there are even more reasons that algorithms can have an edge when it comes to predicting conflicts.
11: Human experts are really, really scarce. You're not necessarily going to have you know, an expert on South Sudan, Central African Republic, for example, in place. And the computer models, because they're more general, we can cover, you know, the entire world. Now, again, our data is better in some areas than others. The second thing is the computer models are completely transparent. And, And the problem with an expert is they don't always know why they know what they know. They may have gotten the answer right, but... You know, it's there's a lot of in, intuition and uh, kind of pattern recognition and stuff that goes on. Whereas a computer, we can track every step of of the process of why did the machine say, uh, you know, yes or no or assign a sign of probability.
6: But that's not to say that there's no place for human experts. In areas of the world where data is poor, local experts still win out. Plus, there's always the possibility that experts may know things that the models don't, like classified intelligence. And there's another thing. Even if an algorithm could be made that could routinely outpredict human experts, it would still be missing a piece of the puzzle. Here's Phil Tetlock again.
0: What it won't do is give you a story. People want stories. They want stories in the media. They want stories inside the policy community. Intelligence analysts can't simply report probabilities or statistics. They have to report a cause-effect narrative. Uh, That's a, a very hard thing to create an algorithm that can generate plausible narratives. Tetlock believes that
6: human and algorithmic approaches can work in tandem.
0: The best systems will be the systems that are most effective at building on the strengths of human judgment and the strengths of algorithms. Um, I think humans are very good at identifying unknowns and posing questions. I think the algorithms are better at assigning uh, more precise uncertainty values.
6: Shrote, too, doesn't see algorithms removing the need for human experts. Instead, maybe acting more like a safeguard against dubious decisions.
11: If these computer-based models become more prevalent, people become more comfortable with them, even if you've got 10 people telling you, oh, this will be fine, don't worry, blah, blah, blah. But your model says, hey, wait a moment, this is not stable, this is not going to come out right, so you've got to persuade me why you're right and the model was wrong. You know, if a model could could make somebody stop and say, hey, maybe I shouldn't believe this guy, that would be great. Yeah, and, and I think we may reach that point. We're not there yet.
1: That was Philip Schroet of Paris Analytical Systems speaking with Noah Baker. Before him, you heard from Philip Tetlock from the University of Pennsylvania.
3: Nature has been covering conflict in many science-relevant ways. Check out the links under each chapter of the podcast at nature.com nature slash podcast. There's a feature on modelling intractable conflicts and news stories on saving Syria and Egypt's cultural treasures from the ravages of war and the researchers offering help to refugees. Find more at nature.com news. Now back to the regular features. Coming up in the news, Lauren Morello has stories of contested radio waves and self-citations.
1: Right now, though, it's the Research Highlights with Sharmini Bundel.
3: Imagine the beauty
5: of a sunset. And now imagine three suns setting. That's the view from a newly discovered exoplanet. It lives in a system with one large central star and two smaller companion stars. As the planet completes its orbit, which takes over 500 years, you'd either get a triple sunrise and sunset, or constant daylight as the three suns twirl around you. The planet is one of the coolest and lightest exoplanets discovered, but it's still a whopping sizzler by our standards, about four times the mass of Jupiter and almost 600 degrees Celsius. More info in science and a video of the system on their YouTube channel. What killed the dinosaurs? A meteor strike? or a noxious volcanic eruption. We know both things happened when dinos roamed, but the fossil record doesn't reveal which event came first. A new study measured how much the temperature changed by examining oxygen isotopes in fossil mollusk shells. The team found a rise of 8 degrees Celsius at the onset of the volcanic eruption, and a smaller rise when the meteorite hit the space rock could have delivered the final blow, but the planet's ecosystems were already on their knees. Nature Communications has more.
3: Finally this week, as usual, as you expect, it's the News Chat. And on the line from the US, it's Lauren Morello. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Kerry. Now, first, we're going to a story about... Weather forecasting, we love a bit of weather here in the UK, but what's what's up with your forecasters? Um, so
12: our forecasters are a little worried about a proposal that's before the Federal um, Communications Commission here. There's a cell phone company that is asking to uh, share bandwidth that right now is reserved for
3: uh, the US government's weather satellites. So the satellites communicate with each other and with ground stations to basically provide satellite data of uh, severe weather and and I suppose normal weather.
12: Right. So particularly here, people are worried that having cell phones operate on the same frequencies that weather satellites transmit their data on could disrupt the flow of that weather information. Um, and that's happened before. Um, during Hurricane Patricia last fall, which was the big hurricane that hit um, Mexico, there were whole kind of satellite images that came down from the U.S. satellites that had big chunks blacked out, and that's because of cell phone interference. Um, And the other big concern for the people that operate the weather satellites is that the next generation of weather satellites is designed not only to transmit data that they've collected, but to act as a sort of relay and rebroadcast station for... Weather monitoring devices on the ground, like stream gauges um, and things like that. The idea is that these things will beam their data up to the weather satellites, which will then broadcast it out to users. You know, that interference that forecasters saw last year during Hurricane Patricia arose from um, cell phone companies operating on nearby wavelengths, not the exact same wavelengths. But the proposal now is for cell phone companies to
3: operate on the same wavelengths as weather satellites. And I suppose the physics problem that underlies all of this is that there just are a finite number of wavelengths, right?
12: Right. That's true. And we're increasingly looking for wireless bandwidth. And that's um, kind of increasing the crunch on the limited spectrum.
3: Who has the nasty decision to make here? Who gets to decide, Okay, we're going to allocate these wavelengths to the weather or to your better increasing mobile phone resolution?
12: So this is the responsibility of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, um, and they had a a public comment period on this proposal to have um, cell phones share this weather satellite bandwidth. Um, And now there's essentially a public comment period on those public comments. People have a chance to respond to the first round of public comments. Um, That ends on July 21st, and then the commission will at some point after that, make a decision. It's kind of impossible to say when. We'll just wait and see what the FCC says.
3: All right. Our next story is about the process of writing scientific papers and particularly the references section. So people often, as you might Imagine, cite their own work when they're writing their next paper. But a new paper on Archive, Lauren, looks at how often men versus women will cite themselves.
12: Yes. Um, And what that paper found um, was that men cite their own papers 56% more than women do on average. The study looked at 1.5 million studies that were published between 1779 and 2011.
3: So the headline figure is 56% men cite themselves, uh, over 50% more than than women do. Um, Any any further sort of subtleties in the findings here?
12: Um, Okay, so the study looked at papers across all different sorts of disciplines um, in the JSTOR database. Um, And interestingly, the authors found that men's self-citation rate um, rose 70% more than women's over the past 20 years. And that's despite an increase in the number of women in academia over that period.
3: I did wonder, you know, when you said the data set goes all the way back to the 18th century, whether there were just fewer women at that stage uh, in science able to cite themselves. And maybe that could have had an effect at the time and even maybe today.
12: Right. I mean, so there are a lot of caveats with this study. It's it's one of those results that's tantalizing, but it's not definitive, right? It just this is something people should follow up on. It's not clear whether this apparent trend of men citing themselves more is um, driven by an underrepresentation of women in senior positions in academia or a different effect. Um, and there are some limitations with the data. For example, the researchers threw out any study where the authors were listed only by their um, first initials. and. Uh, that's something uh, going by only your first initial is something that women sometimes tend to do to kind of make their names appear gender neutral. So just that step of culling the data might have taken a lot of women out of the, um, the sample that was analyzed.
3: Is there a way of clearing up a lot of these caveats, though? Because some of them just sound as if they are inherent problems in the data set and the way the data was was handled that it would be very difficult to avoid.
12: Conceivably, um, you know, with something like uh, the studies where people are listed only by their initials, um, you could probably clear that up with a bit of research and perhaps make that manageable by picking a later start date than 1779. Um, I think there are ways for, for people to go forward here and, and kind of probe this.
3: Putting aside for one minute the the challenges inherent in this kind of data... Um, What kind of hypotheses did the authors come up with to explain this purported trend? It may also be the case that men don't face um,
12: as strong a societal penalty for self-promotion than women do. Um, And it also could be the case that men tend to specialize more. Because if you're working in a very small field with few peers, it becomes more natural to cite your own work just because there's not that breadth of research by other people out there for you to refer to in your own studies.
3: Or women could just be more modest. (laughs) No comment. Lauren Morello, thank you very much. More, as always, for free at nature.com slash news or follow Nature News on Facebook or Twitter.
1: You can find Nature Podcast at Nature Podcast or follow us as individuals at Climate Haddam and at Mini Kerry. See you same time next week.
3: I'm Kerry Smith.